Hey, uh, John, how you doing? Good, Glenn. How are you? I guess I'll get by. I really shouldn't complain. I don't know why. My spirit's a little bit down this morning, but, uh, you know, mood swings and all that. It's Glenn Lowry. This is the Glenn Show. You have tuned in to catch John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry in conversation. We're the black guys wherever we go. Uh, John's at Columbia. He's a linguist. He writes for the New York Times. His new book, uh, Woke Racism, is a, a bestseller, and he's traveling all over the world talking about it. I am just a humble podcaster over here. I teach at Brown University. Mm -hmm. I'm an economist. You guys have heard about me. Uh, we're in conversation every other week at the Glenn Show, John and I, and we're back. Hey, John. Hey, Glenn. So, so folks, if you're wondering, I'm at my rustic Catskills bungalow. That's why the background is different. And so, yes. However, I have not been sequestered somewhere, you know, because I know something or something like that. I'm not in Breaking Bad. So <laughs> I speak to you from the just how rustic is it, John? I mean, do you have paved roads and indoor plumbing and all of that kind of stuff? Just <laughs> like all of those things, but just. And so you, you don't have a very good shower, but I highly recommend places like this. This is actually it's the last um, dirty dancing Mrs. Maisel Jewish bungalow colony. This is the last one standing. So I get to see the end of an era and it is it is delightful but it's rustic so okay more power to you uh, i don't know if i'm prepared to get quite that rustic <laughs> uh, i like my swimming pool in the back i like my spa in the lower level in the basement and uh my you know <laughs> my pool table and my spacious you know, high ceiling and, and air conditioning and all of that. Your kind of house stuff. is splendid. Although I should say that right over there, there is a pool. And so there is a, okay. there's a pool available and a lake and I have a kayak a here. Lake. But no, this is not like your house. And I enjoyed you your house. You probably see deer and moose and things like that on a regular Both of basis. those things are, are common sites. More the deer than the moose. One moose. But there are deer here. Yeah. And other animals. <laughs> so what's new, John? What are you writing about at the Times these days? Um, well, the last one I wrote was a kind of a puckish piece about how one of my daughters has for some reason decided to stop using the contractions gonna and wanna and how I wanna make sure that she can say going to <laughs> and gonna, depending on the situation, but not to avoid contractions out of a sense that they're sloppy. And it's interesting. She's not the kind of person who would be concerned with that. You know, I think many people would think, well, his daughter must be finicky like him. But no, not especially. But for some reason, she's become very careful about going to and want to. So that's not our usual topic. But I'll say that as far as our stuff, um, you just sent me something, which is about the Princeton, New Jersey public school system. Yeah. Dumbing down math in the name of equity. And you ruined my morning. I was sitting here <laughs> rusticating and this business, <laughs> this business of equity, you know, what is it? Equity of outcomes means that you, you dumb it down and that that's supposed to be a gift to people of our complexion. I'm sick of this. What do you, what do you think of that? Well, let me, let's uh, share with uh, uh, the audience what you're talking about. Um, I have a message here from, someone who follows the Glenn Show, Douglas Coate, uh, who is simply reporting about a controversy in the Princeton 
uh, public school system. And I want to share the uh, email and then we can discuss. Uh, he is sharing a public announcement from a committee of concerned parents in Princeton University about diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative at the school system in Princeton, the public school system. We write to express our serious concern about the direction the Princeton public school system is taking under the current administration and the new superintendent, Dr. Carol Kelly. We first became aware of this new direction when the district formed a math committee this spring to consider changes to the math curriculum. The committee was charged with considering changes proposed by an outside consultant hired by the district, a Dr. Eric Milou, who is a well-known advocate of de-tracking or eliminating accelerated course options. The proposed reforms include de-tracking the math curriculum through 10th grade so that all students, regardless of their aptitude or interest in math, would be taught the same content. Algebra 1 would no longer be taught to 7th and 8th grade students. Instead, all students would take Algebra 1 in 9th grade. The Princeton High School math curriculum would end with pre-calculus. The existing calculus courses would no longer be taught. It is disadvantaged students who stand to lose the most from this leveling down approach. Families of means can and will seek such instruction elsewhere if it is not provided by the public schools. And uh, this uh, uh, public letter goes on. Even more disturbing, in response to a parent outcry opposing these charges, district administrators engaged in what can only be called a cover-up by denying that the math committee was formed to consider Dr. Milou's recommendations, by denying that Dr. Milou even made recommendations, and by releasing only a heavily redacted version of Dr. Milou's report that conceals his recommendations, made available only after parents made a formal request citing Open Public Records Act. It is shocking to us that the leadership of the district is dissembling like this. We have detailed all of this in a report that's made available at, and then a URL is given where we can see the parents, concerned parents report. The district's math committee fiasco is an instance of a broader problem. The lack of transparency, accountability, and good governance on the part of those running our schools. For example, in the past year alone, the district has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, taxpayer funds, on outside consultants, many of whom are pushing ideological agendas. Under Dr. Kelly, spending on public relations media and consulting firms in this year alone are 30% more than the previous two years combined. The district paid $47,000 to Dr. Milou, who is well known for his anti-tracking agenda to advise on the math program. It paid $92,000 to hire a consulting firm, Performance Fact, to advise on a new strategic plan centered on equity Performance Fact informed the Princeton community that equity demands, quote, equal outcomes without exception, close quote, for every student. That extreme and simplistic approach to equity leads naturally to the district's new leveling down approach. Yet a recent community forum on the strategic plan, one of only two opportunities so far scheduled for public input, was devoted to an abstract and unhelpful discussion of the ideal graduate 
of our schools rather than to concrete actions for addressing problems of equity. So is a report of what's going on in uh, Princeton, New Jersey's public school system. I regret that it took me, I don't know, five minutes to read that, but that's the uh, informational basis that uh, we can then use to discuss the issue. John. Um, thank you, Glenn. Um, folks, for those of you who are watching as, as well as hearing this, what I was doing was not texting, but um, looking some things up because we're all wondering, and we should know, and I openly admit that I check things like this. What color are these people? Carol Kelly is a black woman. Eric Milou is a white man. So what's going on here is that Eric Milou is under the impression that if you're going to have equal outcomes and you're talking about outcomes for brown kids, then it means that you're going to have to just lop off calculus because brown kids often aren't as good at it. Just lop it off. And what Carol Kelly thinks is that if you're going to have equal outcomes, then it's an unreasonable demand to impose something as challenging as calculus upon brown kids. And that therefore, because equal outcomes are so important, just leave off the calculus. Now, I'm sure she would say in her defense that if a kid wants to take calculus, they can go pursue it later. But frankly, who the hell seeks to take calculus? That's going to be the very occasional person. You have to have it shoved down your throat before you understand the wonder of it. And even if you never do, it's called brain food. But no, for Carol Kelly, that sort of thing is somehow not important. Let's put it that way. Not an important thing when you're thinking about how to create, quote unquote, the ideal graduate. And all that is, is an outgrowth. It is one reflection of the grand old idea that it is not authentically black to be nerdy. That's, that's all that is. Because a Carol Kelly 50 years ago, well, it's getting to the point where it would be more like 75 years ago, would have thought, certainly our children should have the same access to calculus as white kids. That would have been the idea. And here is that woman, you know, that woman with three names 75 years ago who, you know, would have been the superintendent in a southern public school district. Now, you know, Armelia McLeod, Armelia McLeod McAllister's granddaughter is in New Jersey and saying, no, our kids shouldn't have to do calculus because calculus is hard and boring anyway. I am revolted by this. I am utterly revolted when I read news items like this. I think that somebody like Carol Kelly is doing the race wrong and thinking of herself as a race warrior. And somebody like Eric Malou thinks he's being a good white person when really, in a way, and I'm being rhetorical, but in a way, he's being a bigot. I don't like this at all. What do you think? I'm trying to steel man it, man. I'm trying to imagine what the argument on the other side of this is. I'm struggling with it. Um, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree with what you just said, but let me give it a try. So there's inequality. This is Princeton, New Jersey. We know the town. Princeton University is a dominant force in the town. There are a lot of upper, upper middle class and wealthy white residents of Princeton, New Jersey, who may avail themselves of the public school system. Their children are privileged. Their parents are well-educated. Their lives are, you know, the streets are paved with gold for them. Everything is a walk in the park for them. They get stimulation at home, and they arrive at the school uh, ahead of some of the other kids. It's a, 
uh, mixed, socioeconomically mixed community. There are black residents of Princeton. There are modest income residents of Princeton. There are less privileged residents of Princeton who also send their children to the public schools. Given the background inequality, when they allow for the sorting that uh, the presenting of algebra to seventh and eighth graders, at least those who are prepared to avail themselves of it, and the presenting of calculus to 11th and 12th graders, at least, again, those who are ready for it, the sorting, the differentiation, the tracking, smart kids over here, advanced placement kids over here, slow kids over there, uh, remedial courses over there, this kind of differentiation amongst the kids is unjust. And it's, it's, it's uh, perpetuating the background inequalities of family circumstance and of economic position. And it sends a message to the kids. It marks them, the kids who are not at the forefront when you have this kind of differentiation. And it, it reinforces the inequalities in society that the school system should be working to, um, to counteract. Something like that. So it's not that we don't want the kids to take calculus. We do, but we recognize that for the kids of color, for many of them, they're modestly endowed kids. They're going to be not able to benefit from the uh, advanced class that you're offering and in ex being excluded from it, made to feel that they're inferior. And we here at this school system with our commitment to equity are trying the best to counteract that. I did my best, John. That was, yeah, yeah, you have to try to get into other people's heads. And it's me this time in a way who is, you know, demonizing these people who I'm sure have the very best of intentions at heart. Although I do think they are also operating on certain quiet, tacit assumptions that it can be hard to see beyond because we're all part of our time. Um, it's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of what, what you consider the most valuable. And this... I can see how they would feel that they're perpetuating inequalities by sorting out the kids who are better at school from the ones who aren't, which, you know, unfortunately tends to mean that, you know, there are more white kids on one side and more black kids on the other. But the question is, isn't the solution to make it so that, yes, there is tracking of that kind because some human beings are always going to be better at school than others, but you want to make it so that there are more black kids in the higher tracks. Many people's first approach to this would be, how do we get more black kids into the higher tracks rather than let's get rid of the tracking? That idea of let's get rid of the tracking marks 1966 as opposed to 1946. And I don't like it. It's not as inevitable as people seem to think. And let's get rid of the tracking is partly a child of smarts is somewhat antithetical to the black essence or to teach America a lesson, we are going to change our sense of what real standards are because those standards were created by white people and therefore there must be something wrong with them. But as we've discussed before, what other standard is there? Is the idea that you're going to be intuitive and a good dancer and communal because that's not enough? And I get the feeling that's what people are thinking blackness is. And so what? You know, I'm very disappointed in that idea. And it's quite possible to be a good anti-racist and to think, how do we get more black kids into it? So for example, Philip Treisman, this is now I think 30 years ago, looked into why black students at UC Berkeley were not good at calculus. 
And he found, and I thought this was very valuable, he found that the problem was partly that the black kids tended not to spontaneously work in groups. The Asian kids were good at it because they would get together and work on their calculus. The black kids were less likely to get together to study. They'd get together to do other things, but not get together to study. And frankly, I think that comes from a sense that had set in by the 1990s that blackness and being a grind are separate things. And so you're going to do it by yourself. You're not all going to get together and be black together and study calculus. Once the black kids did get together and study calculus, they got better at it. That was an important study that got around a lot back then and for some reason now has gotten lost. I wonder if Carol Kelly knows about that, for example. Why can't we take that advice instead of trying to teach society a lesson by getting rid of white things like being exact? You know, calculus is about being exact and looking out of the box. Why exempt a whole student body from that just because brown kids have trouble with it for socio-historically understandable reasons? I don't get it. Well, that was one point that I wanted to make. It's not just affecting the black kids. This is affecting the entire system. The parents, the concerned parents behind that letter that I shared are... um alarmed that their children will be deprived of an opportunity in order to accommodate the equity concerns. Uh, of course, they can avail themselves of options. I mean, they can private tutor or they can even withdraw from the public school system altogether. They should it's have the families that don't have the options. I mean, who's going to be most adversely affected by this? Some modest income family that can't afford private tutors or uh, private school tuition with a bright kid, I don't care what color, could be Chinese, could be black, could be white for that matter, who um, is in the public school system in Princeton and who now will not have an opportunity to fully develop their intellectual potential to take challenging courses for which they are prepared, but not everyone is prepared uh, because of this equity concern. So it's, it's not just bad for the black kids, it's bad for everybody, one might say. Um, another thought that I had was uh, about transparency. I mean, part of the concern in that uh, letter that I uh, shared was that the school system had not been uh, honest and forthcoming with uh, the uh, wide uh, sweeping uh, uh, revision of math curriculum that Dr. Kelly and uh, Dr. Milou had in mind with their equity agenda. They, had, they were not above board. They didn't tell them honestly what was going on, which means that they knew that there would be an adverse reaction from some quarters and they were trying to avoid the, the implications of that. And uh, that feeds into this larger debate, you know, in public education about critical race theory, ideology, and the parents who are resisting it, and school board meetings that become adversarial and conflict-ridden, and uh, the interests of various on the left and on the right, um, uh, activists and uh, ideologues to try to gin up concerns of this or that and legislation coming out of places like the Florida uh, legislature to, uh, you know, don't say gay and other kinds of restrictions on what is going on in the school. So, so, so that's another thing. I mean, I just want to say for my part, I did take algebra when I was in the seventh grade that, you know, back in the day, I mean, way back in the day. <laughs> But it was absolutely essential, and I did get exposed to calculus before I got to college. It was absolutely essential to my own personal development. I mean, 
you hit the ground running, you know, your first year in college when you've already had some exposure to calculus in your, uh, in your senior year in high school. Um, they didn't have advanced placement courses in the prehistory of my high school education, but they, you know, they, they had a course where if you were really, really good at math, you could take the course and you could be challenged. And that was an essential thing. So depriving uh, kids of that, kids who might want to major in STEM subjects when they get to college might want to take physics and chemistry in their first year of college and get on a track to, to doing stuff in science, you know, uh, and this is Princeton. This is a high-end uh, uh, community of, uh, you know, uh, well-heeled people uh, where I would imagine that uh, the aspirations that parents have, many of the parents for uh, their kids, you know, getting ready to compete for getting into colleges and so forth are are very ambitious. So. It's, you know, it's... um. Oh my God, I just lost my thought. I think both of us are a little sleepy. Um, yeah, the um, the thing that really bothers me about this, here's the second thought that I had. The personal experience on this sort of thing does matter. And you know who never took calculus? Me. Because I went to Simons Rock Early College, which meant that you went after 10th grade. So I don't have a high school diploma. And that meant you missed the things that you usually learn in 11th and 12th grade. Oh, I didn't know that about you, John. Yeah, I went to college early. Everybody at Simon's Rock goes early. So you're there, and you're 16, and you go After on. 10th grade, you went to college. Mm -hmm. And then I started. And you were there for, for four years for a BA or, or longer? At Simon's Rock in my day, which is now 40 years ago, most people only stayed for two years. So you got an AA. Then you did your second two years somewhere else. I did mine at Rutgers. These days, many, many more people do four whole years at Simon's Rock, my alma mater, still in existence. It is a bigger and, frankly, better school now than it was. I used to be on the board. And you go there when you are still, you are in high school. You leave high school two years early. And um, you get going with college right away because, you know, a, a rather curious 16-year-old can handle that kind of work. But what it did mean is that I never took chemistry and I never took calculus. Now, chemistry, frankly, I've never given a damn. But with calculus, to be honest, yeah. I could tell from, you know, watching other kids doing it and you know, the very few at Simon's Rock at that time who opted to take it. I mean, that's so rare. You have to have it thrown at you when you're at that age. But I could tell that there was a magic thing about it. Calculus is the sort of thing where math goes beyond what you can kind of work out yourself sitting down at a table and pushing beads and things around. It, it really, it's mind expanding. And I've learned my way around it since. That's the best I can do. But the idea that you would leave that out, that that is something that you decide isn't as important as social justice, is a truly tragic thing, especially because thinking in that way definitely prepares you for the sorts of things that you might get hit with if you choose STEM when you go to college. And yet, that's the thing. And here's the thought that dropped out of my mind because my coffee is cold. That secrecy is key here because you can tell that what the people in question think is that this is unquestioned wisdom, but that these yeah. ignoramuses out in society are going to push against it. But this is such unquestioned wisdom. This is such, you know, this is, this is such scripture, so to speak, that we're going to slide it in because we know that in God's eyes, this is the right thing to do. But the thing is, it isn't. It really is, I don't even think they're being arrogant. They really do think that they have found God on something like this. But this is the nature of this CRT 
influenced thinking. And to impose this, you know, they're lying about it. It's a truly terrible thing because it's it's a terrible a mind is a terrible thing to waste, et cetera. What is the slogan? Um, it's George W. Bush messed it up, and now I'm messing it up. Um, he says it's a terrible thing to lose one's mind, but the slogan is um, for no. The slogan is it's a it's an old United Negro College right. Fund slogan. Right, a mind is a terrible thing yeah. to waste. Yeah, and in this case, it's that mind expanding. Think out of the box. Damn it! What bothers me is that. For people like this, and this is Malou Kelly and that whole ilk of person, they think thinking out of the box is thinking of ways to assail things as racist. That's the box they think out of. But they don't seem to understand that there are other ways of blowing your mind. And in this case, you know, calculus is mind-blowing, or at least it prepares you for further hell that you're going to go through in college. And here the idea is to get rid of it out of some sense that unequal outcomes must come from something that's unfair that you're expecting black kids to be too smart. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. Just no, no. I'm just wondering, I mean, who is Dr. Carol Kelly? I mean, you looked up and you determined that this woman is a black That's person. That's all I okay? and for. We don't know very much about her, and we certainly don't want to just, you know, make assumptions about her uh, without knowing her. But her ilk, you, you, use, that, you use that phrase. And, and so there's a... There's a mindset, there's a, a, a pedagogic philosophy, uh, a devotion to certain principles about equity and racial justice that has infiltrated itself uh, broadly into the thinking of a class of uh, public school administrators and uh, teachers, uh, of which one instance is this situation that we just got to describing in Princeton, but we could reproduce that example hundreds of times from uh, districts around the country where this kind of thing is going on. So there's a debate, for example, about tracking, about the differentiation and classification of students based upon their ability, uh, which has implications for, for example, how you teach uh, mathematics to kids uh, at the advanced elementary and in the high school years. Uh, who are these people and, and uh, how... Does one actually effectively counter the uh, influence that they're having on the way in which our, our children are being taught? Now, we're talking about mathematics, but of course, it goes beyond that. I mean, wh what about the gender identity controversy where uh, you've got legislation, you know, don't say gay controversy and all of that uh, going on in Florida? Uh, you know, that that uh, is another area in which the ideology of ed of many uh, in education is in tension with the uh, views that many parents would bring to questions about how to educate their children. And it's gotten so partisan now, John, aren't we in a way right-wingers for, aren't we right-adjacent? Aren't we conservative-adjacent for raising a, a question of this sort? And can we have a discussion like this about mathematics and how it's taught without implying something about sexual identity or orientation and how that's handled in the public school systems. Don't we come up to the Christopher Rufo side of the debate when we uh, castigate Dr. Carol Kelly and Dr. Milou for what they're trying to do in Princeton? And uh, is that something that we should be concerned about? Do we have to take sides here? I mean, I I'll stop, but I'll just mention one more thing. I'm here at Brown. We have a graduate school where students come to get PhDs in various disciplines. 
And the graduate school has an administration. So recently there was a report in our student newspaper about a new diversity, equity, and inclusion person who'd been hired by the graduate school to see after uh, students of color who come to Brown to get uh, advanced degrees in the sciences and the social sciences and the humanities. We have a graduate school. People are admitted to graduate programs. There's an administrative overlay that uh, takes care of graduate students. And they've hired an assistant, uh, assistant dean of the graduate school for diversity, equity, and inclusion ministering to students who reports to an associate dean of the graduate school whose responsibilities broadly are diversity, equity, and inclusion, but not only dealing with students, who herself reports to a deputy provost who is in charge of diversity, equity, and inclusion concerns across the various programs at Brown University, who reports to, okay, there are four layers of administrative hierarchy that I'm describing here that have to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is someone ministering to students of color in the graduate school who reports to someone who has graduate school responsibilities broadly for diversity issues, who reports to someone who is across the different uh, units, uh, schools of the university dealing with diversity, who reports to someone who's the chief diversity officer for the university, worrying about faculty as well as about students and programming and curriculum and so forth and so on. Now, something tells me that all of these people are of the same ilk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As is Dr. Carol Kelly with respect to the philosophy that they bring to the enterprise. And we are embedding this in the institutional structure of the university. And my thought was, if I'm a student of color, I come to study at Brown in the physics department or in the history department for that matter, is my being of color the most important thing about myself requiring a special administrative set aside in order to see after my well-being? Um, and, and moreover, there's no debate about any of this. The, the, the administration is set on doing God's work and embedding it in the administrative structure of the institution. And this is happening without significant uh, pushback uh, from any quarters. And if there were pushback, if I were to write a public letter or something like that, it would be dismissed as the rantings of some, you know, uh, Trump-loving, you know, Tucker Carlson-watching reactionary who is simply standing in the way of history, standing afford the historical imperative to create more just and inclusive institutions. All of those people are being paid to identify racism that almost never exists. And I mean, part of their mission is, I mean, to be seen as doing their jobs, they have to smoke some racism out. If they don't, it looks like they're not They're not doing their jobs. They're not earning their keep. And so they're going to find it. People are going to report things to them and they're going to interpret them in, you know, the quote unquote proper way. They're assigned to endlessly discuss and hunt for and decry racism that essentially does not exist at at Brown University. Where's the racism? And, you know, here we are just sitting here complaining about it. (laughs) And that can look kind of idle because, you know, there's, there's nothing to be done about that. And I'm sure Brown is not unique. 
But yeah, a lot of those people are going to enable the idea that anything unpleasant that happens to a graduate student who happens to be black must have to do with, you know, unequal, with unjust expectations of some kind. Something has been done to them. And I don't know, even at your university, there's a certain someone who I will not name who has given talks where they have said that it is unfair to require mathematical analysis from scholars of color, that there are other other ways of being wise, that the mathematical requirement is wrong. I won't name that person. Many people can guess. Oh, is that, that's not Trisha Rose. Of course it? it is. And then... <laughs> well, I named her. John didn't name her. I named her. My colleague. And yes. and Come on, really? She did say that. And I was told it on good authority. And, you know, frankly, if I may, given the feeling for me that I know she has, even if she hadn't said it, we can be quite sure quite sure that she would agree with that sentiment in some way, but she has said it. I'm sure it's recorded somewhere. And then also I've heard it from within my own field said very casually, you know, if you're going to expect this kind of analysis, then, you know, we can't participate as if it's say, as if it's like 1895. You know, when a person said this to me, a very intelligent person in linguistics and it literally made me think of, you know, the souls of black folk. And I was thinking, it sounds like most of us are still ex-slaves. And certainly you can't expect, you know, mathematics because, you know, just we're, we're still at such an early stage of our development. It literally sounded like something somebody would have said around Plessy versus Ferguson. And I thought, no, why, why, why are you expecting me to just nod to this? That, yeah, of course, you know, we don't do math. A lot of that is what underlies these sorts of things. And, you know, Glenn, I don't think it can be fixed. That's the thing. You know, there's some people who process us as just sitting here complaining. We're cranks. And in a way, they're right, because what do you do about this? And in this case, I'm stymied. We can decry it. But as you can see, this is just entrenched in these systems. There's nothing to be done about this clergy, this DEI clergy that's there. And often makes really sloppy calls and destroys lives even in the name of identifying this racism that often does not exist in any way that a reasonable person, even left of center, would identify. But, you know, are we just shouting into the wind? Now, you can also say, are we being Christopher Rufo? Are we being conservatives? And frankly, it's gotten to the point that what is left wing and what is right wing, what is liberal and what is conservative are becoming rather liturgical arguments. These are complex issues. You can not like what is going on in the Princeton School District and have completely hard left views about transgender identity, etc. Um, I right. think either a human being is coming in or wind. Whatever it is, Dolly, do it fast. What are you doing? Uh, no, no, you're not. What, what snack? Dolly. What, what snack? All right, but don't just take the box and pour Cheez-Its into all those kids' mouths. You can have a little bit of Cheez-Its, okay? They're, in a, they're up there. And take a reasonable amount, please. Anyway, so. They're, well, I'm kids thinking about, I'm, as you talk, I'm thinking about the uh, controversy at Georgetown Law. I was thinking about that, too. Ilya Shapiro, and I'm thinking about, a, and, and of uh, Sandra Sellers. Sandra Sellers was the, a lecturer caught on a, uh, a live mic. Not too many. A hot mic. Mm -hmm. Lamenting that in her experience, uh, the black students in her class, a negotiation 
class for law students at Georgetown, the black students tended to cluster at the bottom. She said that lamenting it was her to have said it. There was a big controversy. Folks, you might as well keep this in. So if we're such conservatives, notice that we also have children and, you know, Cheez-Its and lives. Now, give me the bull. He's doing Cheez-Its. Now walk to the for other For Dolly. <laughs> no problem. I'd eat some myself, John, but it's not a part of my diet. <laughs> they're actually, they're very good. No, I understand they're very good. That's a- <laughs> Oh, is it too much salt? <laughs> Yeah, too much salt, too much carbohydrates. Uh, my lovely wife, Lawan, would not permit it, would not permit it. <laughs> anyway, I was trying to say something. And what I was trying to say was, why would you have a, a deputy dean, an assistant dean for minority students in the graduate school at Brown? And you said, well, they think there's racism and they're there to ferret it out. And that's certainly part of it. They think there's the non-existent racism. But another part of it is, they want students to feel included. They want them to feel welcome. They want them to be comfortable. Now, why is that an issue? Why is a brown student not welcome or not feeling welcome or feeling comfortable? Well, one reason might be affirmative action. It might be that you've admitted a student to a competitive program of study who is less prepared than other students, and you knew it in advance, but you were lowering the bar because you wanted to have diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And belonging. Some institutions add belonging to that litany because they want students to feel comfortable. And I was going to give the example, the extended example of what happens at Georgetown. What happens at Georgetown is a lecturer reports and it gets to be public information that black students are not doing so well on the average in her class. And that makes students feel bad. It makes them feel not wanted. It makes them feel not valued. They object to that. The institution protects them because it wants them to be feeling that they are welcome and that they are valued and that they belong. And in doing so, it, it uh, avoids a dealing with a consequence of the conflict that's built into the policy. On the one hand, you want to be elite and selective. On the other hand, you want to be diverse. And there are racial differences, substantial racial differences, in the proportions of the respective populations who are exhibiting the, uh, the, the performance characteristics that allow them to prosper in an elite and competitive environment. So, so um, this, isn't it, is part of the, of the issue here that the background differences in the developed capacities to perform, the developed abilities to excel at the work of the university, their background differences by race and those developed qualities of performance as proxied by entry exams and so on, which then after the fact, after you have admitted in the interest of creating a diverse environment, uh, manifest themselves in one way or another in the classroom and uh, in, the, in the broader intellectual community. And rather than addressing the developmental disparities directly, the black kids are not doing so well in the mathematics curriculum. Perhaps we need to enhance our, um, uh, 
you know, our offerings to them and give them an opportunity. You know, maybe they need extra work. Maybe they need a longer school day. Maybe they need something on the weekend, maybe whatever. Rather than doing that, uh, we uh, either restructure the institution, which is what getting rid of tracking uh, would do, or we uh, uh, call racism the uh, behavior of people who are aware of and reacting to the objective differences in the performance between these populations. And don't we at the end of the day get down and I'll stop to uh, the falsity of Ibram X. Kendi's development, which is if there's, if there's a disparity and you don't call it racism, you're a racist because you're appear, imp implicitly saying there's something wrong. Uh, there's something wrong with black people. Yeah. I mean that, that is the reasoning of a bright seven-year-old. I mean, I think we can dismiss it. But, you know, that's just the thing with, say, the Georgetown Sandra Sellers episode. It's very much as if, um, I think I used this in Losing the Race, which is now 22 years ago, but it's the same thing. It's as if you've been unfaithful and your partner accuses you of it. And you've been unfaithful and you say, you're mean instead of grappling with the fact that you've been unfaithful. You're mean. I don't like the way you said it. It's, you know, you're, it's mean of you to confront me about this. And everybody watching pretends that that makes sense, as opposed to dealing with the elephant in the room. And, you know, it's, it's been a generation now since I started thinking about these sorts of things at all. But to the extent that people would allow that, yes, there is a difference. I mean, there's no question that, that Sandra Sellers was referring to something real. Everybody knows it. No matter what color you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how welcome or unwelcome you feel, everybody knows it. And the question is, why is there that difference? Now, back in the day, say the mid-90s, when I became woke <laughs> to these sorts of things, the explanations, there were three things. One was that it's poverty. There was an idea that most black kids are disadvantaged in some way. And, you know, maybe what people meant was working class or lower middle class, but there's a socioeconomic difference. That was not true by 1995 as opposed to 1965. And I would venture that it's even less true now that any significant number of, say, the black law students at Georgetown come from disadvantaged backgrounds. Some, but not, not most. They're middle class kids, some of them affluent. So there's that. Then there was the idea that um, related to that, that the parents probably work two jobs rather than one, that the parents, because of you know, general oppression and inequality, are too busy to help their children with school the way white parents can. And so you, know, you have to understand that. And there was a name for it. And you actually, Glenn, actually, in one of your more liberal phases, aren't you the person who termed this very elegantly that black students lack the cultural capital. And a lot of people used to abbreviate that as basically that your parents both have two jobs. Was that you? Social capital is what I called it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I developed a theory, which I continue to espouse that uh, people's developmental opportunities, they have whatever potential they're born with. Of course, individuals differ, but I would assume that racial groups do not differ in terms of the distribution of inherent capacity, but that's raw material that has to be developed. And individuals are more or less able to develop their raw potential based upon 
the resources that are in their networks of social affiliation. So if the parents are poorly educated, if the neighborhood they grow up in has a lot of noise, a lot of distraction, a lot of negativity, uh, if, if the um, family connections do not afford them the same opportunities, if they don't get to sit at a dinner table with someone who's actually traveled to France and knows about what the world is about and hear that kind of conversation coming along, they don't have role models that inspire them and whatnot because their networks are impoverished with respect to that kind of experience, then even though they have the potential, they won't realize the potential. So at the end of the day, the inequality of yesterday, yes, last uh, generation, 100 years ago, still cast a shadow over the present day through the, those kinds of effects. Yes, that, that was a theory that I developed. I mean, I, I think it's sociologically, socioanalytically, a, a perfectly commonsensical thing it is to observe you know so that could help to explain why you might have these disparities of performance between uh, racial groups without having to assume that there's an intrinsic inferiority of black people but of course it says nothing about what you should do in the face of those disparities whether or not you should get rid of the uh, tracking that you were doing to whether you should abandon the testing of students and so on and so forth. You can hold to my social capital account of persistent racial inequality and still insist that standards be maintained and be concerned that affirmative action is at best a Band-Aid and uh, treats a symptom and doesn't actually get uh, to the root to the root causes. You need a separate theory, what I'm saying. One is a theory about why does the racial disparity persist? Another is a theory about what are the remedies that are uh, best suited to deal with the persisting disparity. And, you know, on that, yes, obviously the social capital conception is you know, beautifully expressed and is very much something that could keep a child from being as good at school as a white kid who grows up upper middle class in Scarsdale. Sure, definitely. But the question is, does that explanation apply to black kids at Georgetown Law School now who, we have to remember, grew up, were, were born now at the turn of the 21st century. They were children in the aughts. They came of age in the 2010s. And now here they are. Yeah. And so are these kids really hobbled by a lack of social capital as opposed to their parents maybe having been? Does, does the argument still apply? And more to the point, if the answer is yes, and I would be open to, you know, a cogent defense as to why that's still true of, you know, these kids who mostly grew up in the suburbs and came of age in the 2000 teens with iPhones, et cetera, like in our modern time, not at not 10 years after Martin Luther King was murdered, then why isn't the argument made? You know, why is it that instead the idea is, oh my God, Sandra Sellers is a racist and that's it. How dare, how could she possibly say that? And everybody looking on is thinking, but is there that difference? The intelligent thing, the moral thing, the self-regarding thing would be to start leaning on the social capital argument, which leads me to think that a lot of people are aware that that has frayed, that that applies more to somebody who is applying to a law school as a black person in 1976 than it applies to someone now. And so then the only argument left is stereotype threat, it seems to me, if we're going to go back to the 80s and the 90s, the idea that the kids don't do as well because they feel you know, intimidated 
by the looming stereotype of black people as intellectually inferior. And of course, a person could say that a Sandra Sellers saying what she said is exactly the sort of thing that makes somebody earn lower grades. But the thing is, she is referring to something real and you get into a chicken and egg sort of thing, which leads me to notice that stereotype threat hasn't held up very well in terms of replicability, in terms of, frankly, common sense. And so that's another thing. People still refer to that as if it's a mic drop, but it's not really. Well, yeah, an implicit bias. And, you know, there, there's a whole family of, of these uh, social psychological accounts. Now, I was going to say with respect to a place in elite law school, uh, the student body of color there are not uh, kids drawn from the bottom of the uh, hierarchy. They're not kids coming out of, you know, uh, disadvantage, severely disadvantaged socioeconomic Those circumstances. Kids go to other Their law parents schools. are middle class, upper middle class uh, people. These these young people have come from elite colleges and universities, and more likely than not, uh, are above average in uh, family income for con- compared to the population of black people um, as a whole. Um, I think there's another thing. I mean. <laughs> You can look at this in terms of underrepresentation, but you could also look at it in terms of overrepresentation. Why are some groups overrepresented? Okay, I mean, what what accounts for that? I mean, presumably, whatever explanation you give about underrepresentation, there's going to be something on the flip side of that that accounts for overrepresentation. So overrepresentation. So here's one of those things: How hard did you work? How much time did you put in? How much effort did you exert? How many hours a, a, a week did you study? Okay. Now, there are ethnic group differences in those things. Uh, there's a book out there about Asian uh, excellence in academic uh, undertakings. It's called uh, The Asian American Achievement Paradox by two sociologists, Jennifer Lee and Min Zhou, Z-H-O-U, um, who are of Asian uh, background. I think Jennifer Lee's uh, Vietnamese and Min Zhou is of Chinese Mm -hmm. uh, extraction, yes. Uh, And uh, uh, published by Russell Russell Sage Foundation Press, which is a center-left orientation in social science publishing. And based on extensive interviews of families in Southern California, hundreds of them, where they spent many, many hours with these families asking them about their kids and what happens in their home and what happens in their schools and so forth and so on. And the bottom line is there's a culture of achievement that uh, has its impact on the way parents and children interact with each other and the way they interact with the school system with the consequence that these kids can't come home with a low grade without the parents being disappointed. There's filial piety. They want to please the parents and honor their parents and so forth. And this has an impact on their effort and so forth and so on. Anyway, they have an elaborate account. I'm not going to try to summarize it all here, but just to say there are behavioral and cultural foundations for these differences in, uh, in group performance. There's another factor and it's called the incentive effects, or if you will, the disincentive effects of affirmative action. I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you tell a kid, that they can score at the 70th percentile of the population taking the LSAT, the law school admissions test, and they can have a B or a B plus average in college and still get admitted to Georgetown Law Center 
That's one thing. If you tell the kid they had better be at the 90th or higher percentile of the LSAT population of test takers, and they had better have pretty much an unblemished A, straight A record in their courses. Otherwise, there's no chance that they're going to get into Georgetown Law Center. That's a different thing. Now, if the kid is black, the first scenario applies. They, can, they have a pretty good chance of getting in if they're above average, but not at the very top of the distribution of test takers. And if they've got a good, but not pristine transcript, they still have a good chance of getting in. If the kid is white, they basically have no chance of getting in to one of these top law schools if they're not right in the upper tail of the test taking distribution and if they've got more than one or two B's on their transcripts, they have no chance of getting in. Now, all I'm saying is, if that's the world that people are living in, the incentives for effort that would affect their performance after they've been admitted is very different as between the two populations. We've created a regime where the message that we send out to students of color is, you can be okay but not absolutely great, and you still can have a pretty good chance of getting admitted to our program. The idea that that would not affect people's behavior, I, I think, is just contrary to common sense. How much is a question that would have to be studied, but the incentives here are not entirely healthy. Uh, this is the regime that we're creating. We're, we're creating a regime where we're communicating to students of color a sense of entitlement and exemption from the criteria of assessment that is unhealthy. Instead, in my view, we should stay, stand fast by the expectations of performance, accept the fact in the short run that we might not have a population parity of students, but build up the performance capacities of that population over time, and then let the chips fall where they may. It doesn't, if blacks are 10% of the population, we don't have to be 10% of the people getting PhDs in European history, in, uh, in uh, theoretical biology, in uh, economic uh, uh, statistics. Where is it written that every group is going to be represented in the same proportion in every undertaking? Uh, but a world in which we send the signal to black students, we welcome you on the expectation that your performance is comparable to the others whom we are admitting to our rarefied program of study is the world, the only world I think that uh, is uh, worthy of the name equality. Yeah. I mean, it's not, but it's just this final point. It's not equality when you create a special dispensation for blacks and then look the other way at their relatively poor performance after admission. That's condescension. It, that, that's not real equality. Yeah. And I mean, Yeah. The devil's advocate question, and it's a it's a relevant one, and it's a it's a respectable one, is to what extent are black adolescents and teenagers aware of how affirmative action works? I don't know the answer concretely. Do black kids know that they don't have to do as well? Who tells them? How much do the Typical black kids have their ear to the ground about educational policy any more than any other kids do. However, the idea that it's in the air is unassailable. And I can definitely say, although I just qualify as an anecdote, I'm not sure where I picked it up, but I knew about that sort of thing when I was 12. And I knew, to the extent that I thought about college, that I did not have to do as well as the white kids to get into top schools. 
And I know that once you're in, say, 10th or 11th grade, I assume that you can't help but notice that, especially if you're in a relatively small school where you kind of see everybody. I went to a Quaker school um, and there were, you know, a, a few hundred. I don't remember, but you say the senior class was 60 people, that sort of thing. And it was K through 12, um, still is. But you watch the seniors talking about getting into schools. You know, people people talk about it. You'll have somebody walking happily down the hall and getting a hug from a teacher or something. I remember seeing that often. You can't help noticing that the black kids get into every damn school. I mean, it's so I assume that people would know, and I always knew, I was a good A minus B plus student. Quite frankly, I could have been an A-plus student, but I didn't feel like it. I had my nerdy interests, and I knew if I work just at the level I do work, I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to get into places. I'll be, I'll be just fine. I don't remember ever saying it to anybody, but it was painfully clear. And I don't think I was that, that, that different. Shelby Steele has a passage in one of his books where he says something along the lines of, we exempt black students from serious competition and then wonder why they're never qualified for it. And that's exactly it. They never seem to hit the highest note, but then again, they're not required to. And he's absolutely, he's absolutely right about that. And you know what all of this really is, is all of these people are basing themselves on a certain fundamental idea that for us to hit the highest note is either not authentic to us or that we need to teach this evil society a lesson by exempting ourselves from it because it shows that racism exists or something like that. But yeah, it is, it's a kind of condescension and all of it is where you get Carol Kelly. It's where you get Ibram Kendi. All of these people who are very comfortable with the idea of saying that if black kids aren't good at it, it's racist and therefore let's get rid of it, even for other students. And when you fight against this ideology, you're told that you're a racist, you're an Uncle Tom, that you just don't get it. But what is the it to get? And the society that these people want to create is one that I really would not be interested in participating in. And I wouldn't want, yes. and I worry about my children going out into yeah, exactly. this society. I, I, I'm just waiting for them to start being treated as these tokens of diversity. And um, it's, not, it's not the way things should go. Ugh. Well, I, I just wanted to remark, I think you raise a very good question when you ask, what do we know about what kids actually know? Mm -hmm. Do they see the world the way that I just got through describing it with the special treatment for black kids? Are they aware of that? And I don't know the answer to that question. I suspect they are. But that would require a survey and an investigation, and it would be a very fit topic of research to try to get some sense, get a handle on how have these policies shaped the way in which kids perceive their opportunities and react to those perceptions. Mm -hmm. I can tell you this from my interaction with elite white students here at Brown University who have gone to high-end private schools in New York City and like places or ultra-competitive public schools around the country. They are keenly aware of their own, you know, who gets admitted where, and keenly aware of the fact that a black kid in their class who might not have been as sharp in terms of performance in their perception, nevertheless got admitted to four or five places that they had also applied to that they didn't get admitted to, or they only got admitted to one or two of those 
four or five. They're clearly aware of that. And moreover, are tortured by that awareness because they don't want to feel resentment because they know that it's wrong. They, they, they know that they shouldn't be, according to the religion, they shouldn't be resentful of having been squeezed out and uh, not having gotten admitted everywhere that they might have applied, even though they were, quote, better, close quote, than a black kid who did get admitted there. They're supposed to be on the right side of history and for social justice. And so they're tormented within themselves about how to feel about being aware of the differential treatment that they're experiencing. And I just think that's, you know, I say people are bluffing and I say there's a, a dark side to all of this stuff. And I think the resentment, the, the suppressed resentment, the feeling of guilt at feeling the resentment, I don't think that's a stable, healthy, permanent situation. I think that that creates a circumstance where, uh, you know, someone like an Ilya Shapiro, this is the law, prof uh, would be law professor at Georgetown who actually was, his appointment was uh, put on hold while an investigation was undertaken because he had tweeted something about uh, Justice uh, Katanji Brown Jackson not being as qualified as another non-black, non-white potential appointee to the Supreme Court will end up with a lesser black woman who will always have an asterisk next to her name, he said, before he apologized and took the tweet down and so forth and so on. Well, uh, there are a lot of people like him that, who are uh, chastened by what they see happening to a guy like him who speaks out and says his mind. They don't get uh, disabused of their perceptions of quality differences and their resentment at uh, at uh, racial preferences because uh, Ilya Shapiro could get cashiered. And by the way, he's he's stepped away from the Georgetown appointment and has taken a position at the Manhattan Institute as a, I don't blame a research him. staffer. Yeah, he's right. At Georgetown, there would, you know, there'd be a cloud over him, you know, and the second he ever said... Maybe they're just waiting for him to make a, a mistake. He could even, you know, he could, he could walk wrong one day and somebody would video it and, you know, he'd be out on his butt within six months or just it would be such an unpleasant work environment. Yeah, he couldn't he couldn't take a job there. And that's not the way it should be. You know, Glenn, you're bringing me back to um, what got me riled up. You know, why ultimately we're talking here it reminds me of when I was teaching at UC Berkeley and they were discontinuing racial preferences. And I would have conversations with people where it was assumed that I thought like most black academics do about these sorts of things. And I was talking to yeah. George Lakoff, who is the famed linguist and philosopher. I'm not yeah. going to disguise him for various reasons, but he and I were on the same faculty. And he was talking about how his son had fared in getting into schools and his son, you know, brilliant person. And he got into this school, that one, and the other one. And the son had noticed that a couple of his black friends who had grown up middle class in Berkeley, like him, they were not from nasty neighborhoods in Oakland, middle-class black kids like him got into every single top school that they applied to. And I remember George saying, and we all saw that and we were thinking, oh, and he thought of it as kind of cute. He's kind of puckish about it. And we're not supposed to talk about it. I knew my role. This is before I quote unquote came out. And the implication was that we were supposed to think that it's perfectly understandable and defensible that the black kids get in everywhere that they apply. But I was soon to see that with the people decrying racial preferences that the justification was supposed to be that black kids are poor or that black kids don't have social capital. But that wasn't true of these black kids and everybody knew it. And there was this unconscious kind of pact 
that you were supposed to observe in this faculty lounge culture where you didn't question these sorts of things. And once I did start to question these sorts of things, I remember George telling me, first, I've always been against identity politics, he says to me, but he would never say that in public. And then two, he said to me, and I guess he was right, John, if you keep on being public about things like this, you're going to be savaged. You're going to be savaged. He was, to the extent that he could be, he was genuinely concerned. You're going to be savaged. And so there it was. You cannot tell the truth in public because you're going to be torn to pieces and you don't want that. And therefore, you're supposed to shut up. That's academic culture. And unfortunately, if anything, it's gotten worse. I mean, I'm now telling a story about some exchanges I had in 1995 and six. Here we are. It's a quarter century later. It's worse. The culture has gotten worse about these things. The culture has gotten more dishonest, which means that it's not going to change. Academia is not going to change. What would change it? I mean, maybe I lack imagination. Social history sometimes involves hairpin turns, but this is permanent. Let me... Let me remind you, as we come to close here, of what you missed at the Heterodox Academy convocation in Denver. You and I did a a dog and pony show. We did a reprise of, you know, Glenn and John talking for the uh, benefit of the 500 assembled conferees at Heterodox Academy's uh, uh, annual conference in Denver. And that was great. Uh, And I had a good time, John. And we ought to do more of that. And in fact, we are doing on Wednesday, uh, the 22nd of June at the Comedy Cellar in the Village in New York City, a live performance of Glenn and John talking about whatever we're going to talk about. Uh, so people far and wide, uh, if you hear this before then, you should come we and check us out. to figure out what we're going to talk but, about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do have to figure that out. Uh, I'm working on it. Uh, we're never at a loss. Uh, but what I wanted to say, what you missed was John Tomasi's closing speech. John had to uh, leave. Uh, I stuck around uh, after our session to hear John Tomasi, the new president of Heterodox Academy, my former colleague, a philosopher who taught political science here at Brown for many years and uh, ran something called the Political Theory Project here at Brown. And John and I are, are friends and colleagues. And he gave a speech. And anyway, long story short, you ask, how will it change? Academia will never change. Well, the Heterodox Academy movement, of which you and I are a part are determined to have an impact, maybe for the better, maybe change things for the better over the long run. And here's what uh, Tomasi said. This was his formulation. He said, look, there are two kind of ways that we can think about what we're doing. One of them is combat. We're at war with an uh, implacable force on the other side. And if you look at it that way, it doesn't seem like we're winning. We're, you know, few in number and they got, they, they man all the barricades and whatnot. He said, but another way of looking at it is that we are midwives to a process that will give birth to a different vision. And we can't know exactly how it's going to grow, but we're not trying to win a war. We're we're trying to cultivate and encourage the emerging vision that, that we believe in about what the academy should be through our teaching, through our writing, through our public intellectual work. We're trying to change the conversation and move it in a direction. And I thought that opposition between the two different ways of thinking about what we're doing, we're not winning the war. I agree with you. We're, they, they got us outnumbered. We're the Ukrainians and they're the Russians. They got more tanks. They got more, you know, they got a deeper bench. That, you know, they, they, they are winning uh, the war. But we kind of, aren't we? 
are on the right side of history here. And do we not see the early signs of developing uh, energy and innovation and whatever? For example, the University of Austin. This is a new university that is going to be a real university in the fullness of time. Did you know that Thomas Chatterton Williams is offering a summer course at the University of Austin in Austin? Yeah, Thomas, our friend. I mean, he's a literature guy. He's got a course on black literature and identity issues or something. I can't cite chapter and verse. But in any case, my, I'm not, let me not ramble. We're, we're losing the war for sure. But maybe we're a part of something that's giving birth to a, a set of ideas and uh, commitments that in the fullness of time uh, w- will prevail. Got to take the very long view. I hope so. And, you know, it's it's one of those things. So, for example, Ukraine is correct. They're right in this. There is no Mm -hmm. there is no respectable argument from the side of what Russia has done. And in this case, although, you know, I think both of us try very hard to see things from both sides. We're right. The the people who are making these kinds of arguments are clearly on the right side of history. There's this massive hegemony of people who are distracted by a conception of social justice that doesn't hold up logically or morally. That's painfully clear. I I would not be able to be shaken from that argument. So I hope that you're right, that there is something growing that will be significant because, you know, in all arrogance, I will say we are correct about this. It's not that everything that we say is, is brilliant, but the basic philosophical opposition here is one where we are the ones on the side of social justice. The other people are detoured into something for reasons that are partly emotional and partly emotional. And so, yeah, I hope so, Glenn. I really do hope so. Okay, well, hats off to John Tomasi for um, seeing a, a bigger picture than what one might see if you're just engaged in the battle of today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the style that he's bringing to leadership style that he's bringing to Heterodox Academy. Um, all right, John. Well, thanks for uh, giving up some of your Sunday Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, John. Thank you. And I am going to now father my girls by giving them something other than Cheez-Its for lunch. And so Indeed. let's talk very soon. And um, yeah, actually see you Wednesday. But <laughs> let's also do this very soon. Okay. Take care. You too.